Hello and welcome to Four Questions. I'm here with Professor Anand Manon, uh, leader of UK and a Change in Europe at King's College London. And we're going to discuss his wonderful new book on Brexit and British politics. Thank you so much for joining us. Anand. It's my pleasure. Right, so what caused uh, Brexit? God, uh, that's a big question. Well, lots of things. I mean, from the immediate, which is the nature of the campaigns, but more importantly, I think the long term, and two things about the long term. One, we'd never really liked the EU. Public opinion was never that reconciled to membership. In fact, a couple of years after the first referendum in 1975, 60% of people said they'd vote to leave if asked again. And secondly, I think a disengagement from politics that had happened this century that meant that more people were disillusioned with the big two parties, more people were prone not to listen to political elites, and so were more willing to defy them and to distrust them when they said that voting to leave would hurt the national economy. So I think a combination of those two things, political detachment and disenchantment, and a dislike of the European Union came together to create the really unexpected outcome of June 2016. So those two long-term drivers, the dislike of the EU and distrust and disengagement with politics, what, what's caused the distrust of politicians? What, why is that happening? Well, I think a load of reasons, to be honest. I mean, one, the two big parties tended towards the centre ground, and I don't just mean in terms of economic policy, and it's mm. certainly true in economic policy, that both, to a greater or lesser extent, bought into the sort of neoliberal paradigm. Mm. And that meant for those opposed to that, or those doing badly out of it, there wasn't an obvious place to go. But secondly, on social issues and remember one of the best ways of predicting how someone voted in the referendum is nothing to do with economics but to do with your social values but on those two both parties trended towards the liberal side of the spectrum when you get even david cameron and the tories supporting gay marriage mm. then that huge bulk of people in this this country who are actually authoritarian as mm. the academics mm. call that side of the social scale uh, again felt slightly disenfranchised and that left a huge wellspring of people now that didn't matter electorally, it's a cynical view, but I think it's true, because a first-past-the-post system means, A, even if loads of people vote for UKIP, they don't get much representation, mm. and B, because people realise that fewer people vote for UKIP than might otherwise do so, which means there's a lot of people who just don't vote, disengage from politics altogether. But when you put these factors together with a referendum where every vote counts, that's when you're going to get trouble. Mm. So partly it was many of the electorate were more socially conservative than the two centrist parties. Yep. And another point the, the book raises is how politicians have become increasingly middle class mm -hmm. and not representative of the people th that vote for them. And I wonder, is that any different to other European countries? Like, you know, in, in the, we're looking at data on the UK, there's relatively low trust in our politics mm -hmm. as compared to some of our continental allies. And I, I wonder what might explain that difference. Like, is there any less elitism, any less... How have they managed to engage people and maintain, get people along along for the ride? How is their po politics different? Well, in general, in general, comparatively, it seems to me the smaller countries where trust is highest, mm. uh, which says something. I mean, maybe mm. it's just easier to govern a smaller mm. country. Maybe disparities and inequalities are less marked in smaller countries. Mm. Uh, certainly, the northern countries in Europe, the Scandinavian countries, yeah. have a sort of social democratic system mm. that leaves people feeling left out, less left out. Mm. Uh, I'd say 
it's not entirely true that political elites are more trusted across Germany. I mean, the obvious comparator for Britain in terms of size and structure is France. And of mm. course, in France, if you remember, for all the triumphalism yeah. that has followed the mm. presidential election, over 40% of the people voted for broadly anti-system parties, mm. either the far right with Jean-Luc Mélenchon or Jean, uh, Marine Le Pen and the National Front. So what stopped France sliding the same way we're sliding is because, like most democratic countries, they've got an electoral system that is effectively rigged against the extremes. That two-round system provides a very, very clear insurance policy against the triumph of a far-right candidate. Mm. Uh, and again, the difference here is we have that referendum where everyone was empowered. And you know, well, For me, one of the most striking statistics about the referendum is the fact that 2.8 million people voted in June 2016 who hadn't bothered to vote in May 2015. Yeah. Uh, and so a number of people who'd essentially opted out of politics felt that they could actually achieve something by voting in the referendum. Mm. I wonder, what what do we do about this situation? I mean, in long term, you know, I think the, the Brexit vote, if it's the case that people distrust and feel disengaged, how do you think we might combat that? How, how might we address that? Well, several ways. I think, firstly what the referendum did was mobilize a lot of people we've seen a massive upsurge in interest in and participation in politics since the referendum and that's something we should treasure and it's something we should build on in what ways do we see that playing out uh we see it playing out for instance in the massive increase in membership in the labor party you right. see it if you travel around the country like we have to do to give public events in the number of people who turn up the fact that people talk about these things sort of over a beer before and afterwards I'm not saying it's dramatic, but it's marked. Yeah. It's noticeable. Mm. Uh, for me, there are several responses to this. Firstly, politicians need to take their electorate more seriously. And one of my fears about the Brexit process is the government's apparent tactic of saying one thing and doing another is going to make people distrust them all over again. In what ways do you see well, that? Well, one, one of the processes we see in the Brexit negotiations is that a government, the government will say, absolutely, we will not do X. And then a few months later, they oh, will right. do yeah. X whether it's the Brexit bill, whether it's the sequencing, whether it's the nat nature of transition, over and over again, there's mm. a lot of cheap talk, and mm. cheap talk isn't great mm. for trust in politics. I also suspect in this country one of the things we need to do is really seriously think about devolving real power and particularly real fiscal autonomy to some of our cities and our regions, because mm. I suspect that one of the great... I mean, if you look at the Social Mobility Commission's report last week, which is a really heartbreaking document, mm. well, one of the things you realise is that geography matters as much as, if not more than, socioeconomic status. Yeah. If you're a disadvantaged kid in London, you nevertheless have a 50% chance of going to university. If you're in a more remote part of the United Kingdom, your odds are far, far lower. Mm. And so what we need to do is overcome the London-centric nature of this country. I mean, it's, it's no surprise to me that one of the reasons why Germany doesn't suffer from the same sort of populist impulses that we and the French do, and of course there are obviously historical reasons too, but one of the reasons is they have strong regional cities. Uh, and strong regional cities means it, it, it's harder to feel cut off from the political centre, mm. from the mainstream. There's less than us and them. I suppose the, the Corbynites might say, well... We'll be able to tackle this with a left-wing Brexit. You know, if you get finance fleeing, decimate the city, then sudden regeneration of the north as a possibility. Well, what I'd say is any successful economy, I think, needs two things. It needs fairness mm. and it needs prosperity. And the fact is, 
the people at the bottom of the ladder need the economy to be prosperous and the people at the top of the ladder need the economy to be fair. That's mm. the point that's often missed. Mm. Because unless you have the prosperity, you don't have the cash to allow for meaningful redistribution and for investment. Uh, but unless you have fairness, then you end up with the kind of political anger we've seen that can lead to dysfunctional political outcomes as we are seeing as we speak. But can a fiscal decentralisation necessarily boost regional fairness? Well, there are ways and means of doing it, and I'm not saying it's foolproof. What I am saying, though, is the sheer level of inequality between London and the rest of the mm, country, mm. to me, means we need to try some sort of different model. Yeah, it's absolutely. too easy in this country at the moment to say, what's the problem with the North? Oh, I know, let's build a new train line that takes 15 minutes off the journey to London. That just centralises things further. Sure. Why, for instance, aren't we building the new high-speed Transpennine Railway? Uh, why isn't more state money, if you look at all the statistics, the amount invested per capita yeah, outside London higher. is far lower than mm, it is in yeah, London. Yeah. Uh, so all I'm saying initially is we need to redress the imbalance. I'm not necessarily saying we need to pour loads more into other areas than into London, but let's at least redress the imbalance yeah, and let's invest in these places. Because unless the whole of the country contains places where people want to live, then we're going to make, we'll continue with this problem. The final thing I'd say is it's more even than geography because there's a lot of research being done recently and there's a newly launched Centre for Towns which is a great initiative uh, looking at the fact that we have a massive division in this country growing between cities and towns so broadly speaking and I know there are a couple of exceptions but in general cities voted Remain and cities voted Labour and in general again towns voted Leave and towns voted Conservative cities tend to be doing relatively well economically towns tend to be doing relatively badly and we don't really have obvious solutions to that question. Again, when we talk about devolution, people immediately think, yeah, let's invest in Manchester. But actually, the real issue isn't Manchester, it's Oldham, it's Preston, it's Bolton, it's Wigan, it's the towns round Manchester. And sometimes, as I see in the place I came from, Wakefield in West Yorkshire, the growth of a successful metropolitan city like Leeds can actually suck the life out of towns. So we, And I think that's where devolution comes in, because it's people with local knowledge and local expertise who understand how these towns work and can think of creative solutions. Mm. Another uh, aspect of the book that really intrigued me was the table showing that the beliefs about the EU did not change much over the course of the campaign. And I found that really interesting on two levels. One, as an academic highlighting the, you know, the futility of, of our engagement thus far. And also, I suppose it is relevant to people worrying about Russian influence, that even mm -hmm. if that, that might have happened, well, we still have this huge problem. Why do you think there was no shift in beliefs over the course of the campaign, despite all the ideas and arguments and debates? And well, it's really curious, isn't it? Because within the space of a year, we had two campaigns, one of which, as we argue in the book, the referendum, actually had very little impact when it came to changing minds. Mm -hmm. The other of which had a massive impact. If you see another table in the book shows the growth of support for Corbyn and the fall in support for Theresa May mm -hmm. during the election mm -hmm. campaign. And I think the key here is values. Mm -hmm. I say one of our arguments is your, your attitude towards the European Union tends to be based, or based in or derived from your values. Mm -hmm. Values change only very, very slowly mm, indeed. Mm. And so we show that actually, if you look at polling from 2011-2012, it pretty much predicted the outcome of the referendum. People don't change their minds on values questions that quickly. This isn't to say, I should add, that the campaigns were irrelevant, because mm. actually I think the key role that the campaign played in the referendum was getting people to vote. 
And there, Leave played its cards brilliantly. As I said before, those 2.8 million were persuaded, many of whom who hadn't participated in politics, either in their lifetimes or for a long time, that it was worth getting up, registering and going to vote for the first time. So in that sense, where you see the working class vote increasing more than the middle class vote for the referendum, mm. there is the success mm. of the Leave campaign, getting its supporters out on the day. Mm. But how, okay, here's a, a related question. What does this mean for academics? You know, if we, you know, we're supposed to do this impact and public engagement mm -hmm. to our podcast. Yeah. But what what do we do if no one's listening? I mean, should we engage in a different way, or should we work with different networks, or how can academics trying to engage, share ideas, etc., do better? Well, this is this is the the issue that consumes my day to day life at the moment. And firstly, we're not going to have the reach of big popular media mm. as academics. Mm. But there are ways we can do more. Part of it is working with the media. Part of it is being more systematic about publishing research findings in the media. Part of it is talking to potential research users before the research is done so yeah. that they have a say in how that research mm. is Engaging, is yeah. building ownership. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I currently live in a very strange world and it, for an academic, and it's a world where people are falling over themselves to hear what our researchers have to say. But that, I think, is because Brexit is so unique. I mean, sure. Brexit casts everything into doubt, if you mm. like. But one of my hopes is that, as a result of this, people in the future, if, we, if and when we get back to, in inverted commas, more normal mm. times, mm. will think, actually, academics did quite a lot and were quite helpful then we should continue using them because I think part of the issue is a culture in this country whereby policy makers and indeed journalists have always kept academics at arm's length for a variety of reasons and that's something I hope we can manage to shift via engagement over the referendum. I mean the final point I should say is that many academics themselves haven't made the job easier for politicians or media people. How could we make the job easier? If you're advising someone like me, what could I do to be... So I'm, my research is not very interesting. It's not unlike yours. It's not like, wow, everyone's falling over themselves to find out about it. How could we be a better service to the public good? Well, I don't think you should say that about your research for a start. Yeah. I think answering interesting questions with evidence is intrinsically interesting, OK? Uh, and yes, Brexit is all-consuming at the moment, but... It's not the only policy question in the world at the moment. Now, obviously, to an extent, we're going to be shaped by what the media spotlight is on. Mm. The spotlight is on our research. It makes it a lot easier. But I would say, as I said before, contact parliamentarians who have shown an interest in the kind of research that you do is an obvious way of doing mm. things. Submit things to newspapers. And, you know, here again, there are a lot of newspapers from the well-known dailies to more local, more regional But things. I should add, academics did publish in newspapers in the campaign, but as you showed, the attitudes didn't change much over the campaign. So I don't know if just being in newspapers is enough to... I think it's a really high bar if you think that academics are going to fundamentally shape public opinion mm. in a national mm. campaign, mm. because it is inevitable that their voices will get drowned out, and they will get drowned out for a variety of reasons, by personalities that people have heard of, and by the fact that actually when you have a campaign, the media want fights. Mm. Mm. They don't want so we shouldn't. Opinion. So as academics, we shouldn't be too concerned that our... I think it is, it is unrealistic to expect, mm. given the current culture, for the media to be saying, oh, let's have an academic on that panel. Mm. One of the things, we, we have an ongoing conversation with Question Time, and they've always been slightly reluctant to have any of our team on, because they say, but you haven't got a point of view, you're just presenting evidence. Where's the fun in that? Right. Uh, 
and I, you know that's a real hurdle to be overcome. I should no add for listeners, your Twitter feed is consistently hilarious, so there is a lot of fun in that. Yeah, but I mean, I I have to say, I suppose I write in a personal capacity mm. on Twitter, and I do things other than being an academic. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the media media wants punch and duty. Mm. That's the fact mm. of the matter. Mm. Uh, and that's what drives viewers. And if you look at some of the clickbait that our supposed newspapers put out on the internet, you know that actually it's all about shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why actually being an academic, you need to be patient. You need to not expect to reach millions of people, but you need to target your audience as carefully to reach the key people. And I still think that's possible. Mm. And I still think, for instance, once you have a reputation for being good, for being reliable, for being trustworthy, journalists will come back to you. And that's an indirect way of reaching a far bigger audience than your four-star journal. Mm. Okay, final point maybe. What do you think most people get wrong and could better understand about the Brexit process now? I mean, for me, the answer, I suppose, would be the tone of the debate really worries me. Mm. Uh, And I mean that from both sides. I mean, Mm. at the UK and the Changing Europe, we have to be, because of the condition of our funding, impartial. Mm. So we don't take sides. Mm. And if we publish something that one side or the other doesn't like, I still am amazed by the sheer vitriol Mm. that is aimed at people. And for me, actually, I would like us to be able to have a sane, rational debate about the best possible future course for this country rather than a slanging match Mm. where the other side are routinely dismissed as idiots, snobs, Mm. elites, Mm. uneducated, whatever it may Mm. be. Uh, I did a public event in Oxford the other night and was struck by the fact that the language was about unsophisticated people who took us out of the European Union and actually the problem with that is that it lessens your chances of changing anyone's mind because yeah. if you start a sentence with I think you're unsophisticated but here's why you're wrong they're not going to listen to you so for me it's the tone of public debate that needs to change yeah absolutely how can we build that mutual respect and courtesy more, more into our discourse because I see it so often and and even by you know I used to think that it, oh it was only you know weird people alone in their rooms typing horrible things but actually it's quite normal people in office jobs will say quite nasty rude unpleasant things which but you know maybe they're rushed and they just want to get something off their chest etc but how do you think we as a society because so many people have have written about this and railed against this you know online comments don't look below the line Mm -hmm. Uh, and we've talked about it and you know even Cameron said no more punch and judy politics but still we haven't been able Mm -hmm. to build this basic courtesy and and I suppose it's partly empathy you know people talk about a divided Britain and it's partly about not knowing the other side so vilifying them or stigma how do we build a, an empathy and courtesy I don't think we can to mm. be perfectly honest I think uh, too much conspires against it from social media and I think mm. if you're going to be on social media all you, you just need to have a very very thick skin mm. and mm. no don't look below the line <laughs> uh, I had a salutary experience writing something on immigration for the Guardian where I looked below the line and I wish I never had mm. uh, But I think, for me, the important thing is that academics don't sink that low. Mm. That we should keep up a tone that is polite, that is Mm. respectful, that is not abusive, because at the very least, what we are then doing is saying, look, this is just the evidence. Take it or leave it. This is just what the evidence says. If you want to come back to me saying why my evidence is wrong, it's fine. But if you want to sort of question my parentage, then we don't have a debate. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thank you so much. So let's sum up these key points. One, recognising the long-term drivers of Brexit in terms of political distrust and alienation and perhaps combating that through decentralisation, rebuilding fairness, mm -hmm. um, building a stronger, fairer, uh, more inclusive economy. And then also you said it think, a lot better than I did. And then yes. no, no, I'm just learning <laughs> from your wonderful book. And then going forward, academics working more closely with media, building mm -hmm. stronger ties with also and with, politicians, with and politicians, stakeholders. Yeah. Absolutely. <coughs> and finally being nice and kind and polite. Yes. Thank you very much, Anna. It is my pleasure.